Hello and welcome to YHTV's nominated show, Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 94. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzaman. With me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. What's up, Doc? <laughs> Don't start with me. <laughs> it got... should be, what's up, Docs, today? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide, along with Christina today, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. And today, I'm, as always, excited, but doubly excited, because I have two very special people with me. The title of the show is World Class Medicine, World Class Doctors, and you're going to see why this happens to be. We have with us today uh, Debbie Weinstein and Jason Prostowski, both physicians in emergency medicine. But before we go on and introduce them, Christina, would you like to take care of our laundry? Uh, our laundry. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> which, which basket shall we do today? Um, uh, please feel free to ask a question or make a comment just simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. And if you're not uh, viewing this online, you can... Maybe it's through an iPod or something. You can simply call us at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. And uh, be sure to let us know how we can reach you and respond to your question or comment. Now, your question or comment can be with any of our guests, uh, Dr. Woolman, myself, and we will be sure to pass it along to them. Thank you so much, Glenn. Oh, you're welcome. I I would like to spend a lot of time introducing uh, Dr. Weinstein and Dr. Prostowski, but I would rather be talking with them. I just want to say that not only are they emergency medicine doctors, and you know how much we love that and how much fun that usually is for us, but these are also people that uh, independently have gone and done um, community medicine also, mm. and they go when there's when there's a disaster or a war somewhere in the world and we watch it on our televisions or on our iPads and pods and everything else and just listen to it, these are two people that actually pack their bags and go to these places where big disasters happen and war zones. And we're going to talk with them about that today. And I want to hear a lot of great stories, and I know we will. So without further ado, I would like to introduce my colleagues and friends Dr. Debbie Weinstein, and Dr. Jason Pristowski. Greetings, Debbie and Jason. Hey. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> Peace. Welcome, welcome to the show. Our heroes, our heroes. I love it. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Christina. Thanks, Glenn. They thank are heroes, you. I'm telling you. Mm. So, just so that both of you know, the, the first part of the show, as the medical guide, I try to... Uh, tell people where we're going to go with the show. So in the first few minutes of the show, I want to find out a little bit about each of you and basically why and what influenced you in going just into the career of medicine. After that, we'll talk a little bit about emergency medicine and, and we'll share some stories. Each of you can give some stories, talk a little bit about the community work that you do. And then I want to get into a part that we have not had the opportunity to speak with others about on a level that we'll get to speak with you about what happens when you go to a natural disaster in the world and what happens if you're in a war zone. These are things that I think might be very interesting for all of us and for our global community. So let's start with that. Debbie, what got you interested in medicine? Uh, my parents are physicians, so I swore I was never going to medical school, so I actually <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I, I stayed in my adolescent rebellion for way too long, and so I went to graduate school instead um, and did neuroscience, and then the light bulb went off, and I realized that I was much more interested in working with the actual people that had the illnesses and not doing the research, so went back to school and on to medical school. Oh, nice. Jason? Uh, yeah, I, very similar to Debbie's story. I come from a big family of physicians, and they told me that I was going to go to medical school. And I said, hell no, I'm going to get a PhD in philosophy. I'm right. going to go off and save the world. I want to be a person of ideas. 
And, uh, and I, I worked here locally in Santa Barbara uh, as an EMT on a local ambulance company. And the same group of physicians that I work with now here in Santa Barbara, California, convinced me to go to medical school. And uh, in medical school, I went to night school to get my master's degree in public health uh, because as a uh, doing pre-hospital care and taking care of uh, providing health care to people in, uh, in their homes, you get a, a little big, a bigger picture as far as the public health, uh, all of these different social factors that go into determining someone's health. And, you know, I went into pre-hospital medicine like any young man does because you get to drive trucks fast and wear a uniform and lights and <laughs> sirens and look cool. And I really fell in love with that, that personal touch, like Debbie was talking about, the, the human condition, that, that relation, that sacred relationship that you, you, you develop um, when, taking, when having the privilege to take care of someone who's sick. Mm. One of those people that uh, you mentioned that influenced you was uh, Dr. Bob Gayu, who we interviewed on this show, and I would recommend everybody uh, go back and watch that ER interview. Jason, did you say that you, while you were just hanging out in medical school, you went and got a master's degree in public health also? Yeah, I was. I, I, I don't recommend that. It was not very good for my wellness. It was not, it, I may do a better service for the communities in helping them become healthier now. Uh, but I sure wasn't healthier at the time doing both at the same time. Wow, I'm impressed. So you go through medical school, Jason, and uh, then there are so many specialties. Why did you pick emergency medicine? You know, I, I thought I was going to be a trauma surgeon like Hawkeye Pierce. I, I just figured, you know, Hawkeye Pierce was my hero. I watched MASH, and I said, I want to be that guy. And uh, and someone gave me some really valuable advice, um, um, and they said, you know, if it feels more like fun than it does work, then that's what you should go into. And going into the operating theater felt like work, but being in the emergency department felt like fun. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, um, I was ready to drop out of medical school because I just thought the whole healthcare industry was just was just full of really shady, dodgy people. And, and then I, I found this group of people who were, uh, were running a, a free clinic in West Chicago and also going to Latin America. And I, that's when I really developed a passion for underserved communities and realized, you know, there's more to medicine than what we see with the Affordability Care Act, what we see in a modern hospital. There actually is something a lot more to it. Um, and there's a lot of really amazing people that go to where the need is. And when I say where the need is, I'm not just talking about disasters, which is I know where the conversation's going, but also the, these kind of chronic disasters that happen right in our own mm -hmm. backyards with underserved communities. Uh, very good point. Debbie, why emergency yeah. medicine when you were a neuroscientist? <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting. So, again, similar story to Jason. I wanted to be a surgeon. I loved the immediacy of you open somebody up, you fix them, close them up, done. And mm. I also got some good advice in my fourth year of medical school from a colleague who said, you know, if you go into surgery, you might love it, but you'll also be signing your life away and you won't have time for anything else. And right mm -hmm. then I knew I had aspirations to not only uh, volunteer and do um, medicine outside of this country and, and like Jason, um, help take care of the folks right here with need. And I knew that emergency medicine would not only be fun and exciting, but allow me the flexibility in my career. Uh, so you've been in that career for at least 15 years now. I'm sure <laughs> that you can share a, a story. This no, is the part that everybody okay. loves, you know, and they hear ER stories, tales yeah. from the pit. <laughs> <laughs> share a story with us, Deb, something that influenced you in the emergency department. Um, this, this was just, you know... There are some tragic stories, of course, that stick with you. And then there's some really funny and happy stories. And so uh, speaking of EMT firemen, uh, we had a, a small child. He was about four years old, and he'd come in. He was having a, a foul-smelling drainage from his nose. And his mother said, I, I think he put something up there. And I said, all right. So we took a look, and I found a little plastic fireman that I pulled out of his nose. <laughs> and as I always do, I, I check again to make sure, you know, no significant bleeding or foreign bodies or anything remaining. Looked in again, there was something else. So I went back in, pulled out a fire truck. And <laughs> oh I just, I sort gosh. of looked at the little boy and uh, somewhat incredulous. He said, well, I, I had to send the fireman in to get the truck. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, just, and his, parents his logic were, was totally uh, sound. It, it was. It, I mean, of course. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> the truck was stuck. Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. That up is his a great nose? Story. Up his nose. You'd be amazed at what they put up their nose. <laughs> wow. And how many they can put up there yeah. over, over oh, a yeah. period of time before mom gets a handle on it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, 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 if you think about it, it takes a little, you know, Debbie was bringing up the symptom that brought him in, which was the foul smelling drainage. So that doesn't happen instantly. You don't put a fireman up your nose. Well, I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know how to say that. Don't put anything up your nose and it instantly starts draining. It takes right. it sometimes takes, yeah. days to a week or. Wow. It but could take a can while. How parent not even notice that? Does it, doesn't it bump out? <laughs> I, 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 I give medical advice, but I never give parenting advice or relationship advice. That's just as an emergency <laughs> physician. I, I'm always happy to give medical advice, but I never tell parents how they should parent. <laughs> Debbie, it would have been interesting. Yeah, that, that is actually great <laughs> advice and wisdom, Jason. <laughs> Debbie, I, I wonder if it would have been interesting to maybe sound an, an alarm by his nose and see if the fireman came out on his own. Yeah, he came, came well, sliding down a pole or something, right? <laughs> or her own. So, Jason, Jason, how about a story from you? You know, it, it's funny listening to Debbie tell that story and, and knowing that you you had, had an amazing career in emergency medicine. I, I you know, in emergency medicine, we have this really unique window of the community, and I, and I work nothing but overnight, so I'm, I'm the nocturnist. I'm the, I'm the night guy in the emergency room, and, and I got, there's tons of stories uh, of the adrenaline and the blood and the guts. There's tons of stories of the someone stuck something where, and, uh, you know, but the, the stories that really, that really haunt me and the ones that really keep me up at night are, are the ones that kind of happen every day. And, and one of the things that, that I'm really proud of being an emergency physician is, is not the fact that we're here as a, as a safety net providing great emergency care, but the fact that we don't turn anyone away. And that, to me, is a really badge of honor. That in my career, and I know in Debbie's career in emergency medicine, not once have we ever told someone, oh, you can't afford our services, you need to go somewhere else. We see everyone. And, and it's, it's, it's the, you know, there's plenty of funny and exciting stories, and at cocktail parties after a couple drinks, they always come out. But it's the stories of the, uh, the mom that's bringing her kid into the emergency room at one o'clock in the morning because she works three jobs just to make ends meet and can't afford mm-hmm. to take a day off of work to take her child to the pediatrician. So mm-hmm. she's taking her child to the emergency department at one o'clock in the morning because, because she's, she's poor, she's uneducated, and she's scared. And all mothers love their kids. And when they get scared, they don't know what to do. And we offer that service. It's, it's the person that comes to the emergency room because they have diabetes or high blood pressure and, uh, and they can't afford their medications. So they wait until it gets so bad that they are in the emergency room. And, and now I'm their primary care doctor. And, and, you know, and that's what's, what's really kind of frustrating to me is that emergency medicine, especially emergency medicine at night, gives us a little bit of a window to the people in our community whose needs are not being met. And we in the emergency department really scramble to be all things to all people 24-7. Uh, you know, we offer trauma services, cardiology services, neurology services, orthopedic services, mental health services, social services. Whatever someone needs in that acute phase, we do the best we can with what we have to, to, to help them. And, 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 you know, it's, it's and I know it's not a very sexy topic, but I feel like as an emergency physician, that's a story that, that we really should be telling is – we're taking care of a lot of people that, that the rest of the community and society really isn't and sometimes should. Mm. So, sorry to be a downer, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> Total downer, Jason. <laughs> I'd like to cancel the rest of the show. If you're, if you're going to continue to answer questions like that... I've then, already uh, gotten gonged. It's only been a few minutes. I love it. <laughs> we might like Debbie's stories more. <laughs> but no, actually, that's a really good point. I worked mm-hmm. the night shift uh, for many years, and Debbie worked the night shift. And there's something very special about that. You you do see uh, people that you might not normally see under normal circumstances, and it's a it's a great thing to be part of that. And I like that you brought up how in emergency medicine we do much more than emergency medicine. And and speaking of that, I know each of you does a lot of things in the, in the community. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit because most of the time people that went into emergency medicine do it so they can work and then go away and play. But you guys do more than that. You guys and dolls, ladies, uh, the way we figure that out. 
you both do more than just emergency medicine. You take more of your time and go out into the community and do things. Jason, what do you do in the community? Well, it's, it's, thank you for the question, Glenn. And I think one of the great things that I'm sure Debbie can attest to being an emergency physician is that our job is so much fun that it kind of, I, I'm lucky that they pay me to do it because I'd probably do it for free. I hope Bob's not listening to this right now. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, what we do is just so much fun. Uh, I, you know, I made a career uh, before moving back. I moved back to Santa Barbara three years ago and, and before I moved back, I had spent, like you were talking about, time in, in war and, and in conflict and post-conflict. Uh, and when I came back here, I had this extraordinary skill set of uh, working with people displaced by war, uh, working with people that society wished they would go away, refugees, uh, political um, – Sort of uh, political, you know, the, the sort of the, the political pooped upon, and and I came to Santa Barbara and I fell into this nonprofit uh, called Doctors Without Walls Santa Barbara Street Medicine, which provides free medical care to the homeless, the uh, the indigent, the working poor, um, out of mobile clinics, and we we have a backpack full of medicines, a backpack full of wound care. We go pro- set up clinics in parks. We set up clinics behind dumpsters, and we bring medical care to the people who we think need it the most. And who ordinarily, without us there, would come to the emergency department to get care. And it's a true passion of mine. I'm the medical director. We have students uh, that are college students, high school students, recent graduates who come and we teach them community organizing and, and sort of the, the philosophy behind humanitarian medicine. And they go off to become doctors and nurses and hopefully congressmen and senators um, and, uh, and, and with this valuable skill set. It's, it's a true passion of mine, and, it, and it's, it's wonderful to be able to give back to the community, to be able to be in the ER at night and see what the community needs and then be down in the trenches with a backpack full of medications and a mobile clinic and a bunch of really inspired volunteers to improve the quality of medical care in our own community. Wow. Christina, you can see why we love emergency medicine. Oh, and yeah. emergency I'm, medicine look, I'm doctors, bouncing. Huh? I'm bouncing. All right. <laughs> Jason, you've gotten Christina excited. <laughs> nice wow. work. Very nice. Come on out and volunteer with us, Christina. We're 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 waiting. We're um, ready. Hey, hey! I, I I may be going on one of those trips at the end of the year to Thailand with uh, Poonam Chowdhury. Mm. So there's <laughs> another ER doctor <laughs> who travels uh, uh, the world in these clinics as well. So uh, <laughs> I'm ready. Uh, perfect. Debbie, you, aside from working in emergency medicine and working in clinics, <clears throat> you have some other special things that you do in the community. You want to tell us a little about that? Sure. But uh, first off, just a huge thank you to Jason for that organization in Santa Barbara. What a, what a huge gift that that organization provides the community. Applaud your efforts. And I'm going to come down and volunteer. Thank you. We, we were, I, was just, I was just waiting. I was hoping that you would say that. So you, you <laughs> left, you, 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 it, I, and now I don't have to go through the groveling of asking. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've actually met a few of your volunteers who've come on other uh, humanitarian trips and have talked about the organization and nothing but all good things. Amazing. Mm. Um, so there are a couple of things um, I do here. Uh, one is a cancer camp, Camp Keepsake, that's out mm. of, uh, it was initially out of Calabasas, now it's out of Ojai, that's every year. And I am the um, staff physician as well as the medical director for the organization. It's an entirely volunteer organization that is for cancer victims and their families. And it's for them to have a um, weekend of activities that don't involve cancer. So there are spa treatments, there's a climbing wall, there's archery, you name it, we have it. Um, And it just helps them to sort of get away from cancer for a weekend And then in addition, something that's very near and dear to my heart is the San Inez Youth Coalition, which is a group of community volunteers. I just stepped down as chairperson that um, we do our best to educate kids about drugs and the downside to drugs. I'm sure Jason has seen this, Glenn, you've seen this, where young people come in after having overdosed, uh, particularly recently on prescription medications. And I had a young uh, 16-year-old die in the emergency department. After a farm party is what it's called. Mm. Anyway, um, so we go into the schools, we go into the community, we educate parents, we educate the kids, uh, teachers with regards to uh, drug and alcohol abuse. 
Wow. Oh, thank you. That is yeah. awesome. <laughs> sure. Wow. This is great. This is just great. I love this. If, if you ever want to swap levels. volunteers, do a little bit yeah. of like a porn exchange and like I'll take some yeah. of yours, take some of ours for a little bit. I'm I'm down, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm conflicted now, I must say. I had a lot more questions, but I'm thinking that it would be really fun to listen to Jason groveling to ask <laughs> Debbie something. So I, I'm not sure what I should do about that. What do you think, Deb? Oh, by all means. I think you should ask a question, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then then let's let's get to the next part. Like I said, we've talked with emergency medicine physicians and we've heard stories and and community people and you guys are just icons in the field making it all look beautiful for the rest of us and helping the communities uh, with asking very little in return, which is so wonderful in itself. I want to get into the next level of what you do because most of us that work in medicine are really localized. We, you know, Someone has an office here and they work with whatever local community they live in. But you both have taken this whole medicine thing to a completely different level. You go around the world and take care of people in, in their times of need. And I want to talk about that. And I want to hear just a general impression of how you got interested in that, each of you. And then I want to talk a little bit about what's necessary. You could include maybe is there certain training that you need to uh, do this? And then I want you to also answer somewhere along the way. I'll ask the question again in a few minutes. But um, how other people, how other physicians that might be listening to this show or nurses or other people in healthcare can get into the same thing. So, Debbie, why don't you start? Tell us what got you interested in world medicine and how you go about it. And then we'll, then we'll tell some stories in a little while. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, it actually began with a mutual friend of ours, uh, Eric McFarland, Dr. McFarland. He and I were working at Lompoc and uh, he mentioned he did Aramedicos, and would I like to tag along? And I said, by all means. And so this was back in 99, 1999. And uh, I actually met Bob Gayu uh, through Aramedicos, and we've been good friends. He's just amazing. So a number of folks were involved in this organization. And I realized right then and there that it was my passion. There, there was no doubt that this um, was going to become my real career. Um, mm. My, my ER medicine funds my real career, as I'm sure is the same with Jason. So that just morphed into um, going on other trips with other colleagues all around the world, other organizations. And with regards to training, um, the really with the groups I've been with, there's no specific training, with the exception of uh, the disaster medicine through an organization called Medical Teams International that did require a brief. It was, uh, it's called the IMCI, the Integrated uh, Management of Childhood Illnesses, a brief review they wanted you to be aware of before you went out, but specifically no, no um, specific training. training. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. Uh, Jason, how about you? Um, well, I, you know, I I got my career in global health really started when I was a medical student working in Chicago, where uh, I was so frustrated by, again, the, the sole infrastructure that I found great joy and great fulfillment taking care of uh, sort of the inner city underserved um, minority pot communities and, uh, and immigrant communities. And uh, that led to me doing uh, my residency training in Atlanta and I, you know, I ended up leaving my academic job to go to Sub-Saharan Africa for an organization called Doctors for Global Health, um, and then went to live on the Navajo Indian Reservation for a year, which, you know, when I look back on my career at the time, it seemed very schizophrenic, like I was making all these bizarre uh, career decisions, but now they all kind of flow together because they're all linked by this idea of, of that there's something very inherently wrong with our healthcare system. And a lot of us that go into medicine, go into medicine with these very noble ideals. We really want to help people. And, and, and the politics of the industry really sometimes makes that a challenge. And when you can go to places where there's a philosophical purity, where you, you take away a lot of the bureaucracy, where it's just someone's sick and you have the the know-how and the tools to help them feel better, there's something that's just 
very pure and, and, and very ancient and very sacred about that. Um, the highlight of my career, you know, and I, and I, I wish I had done a formal course, like Debbie was saying. Uh, my dream was to one day join Doctors Without Borders, which I had the privilege of doing, and I, I spent nine months in South Sudan uh, in active conflict, and it was, to me, I mean, that's the NFL. That's, that's you know, how every kid that throws a baseball one day dreams of pitching at Wrigley Field. Um, sorry, Fenway fans out there. Um, you know, this is why we go into medicine, is to go if you want to do the greatest good, you have to go to where there's a need. And, and I went there, and, and, and it, was, it was AK-47 trauma injuries. I mean, one in ten women died in childbirth, and we were doing all of this obstetrics and women's health. There was a measles outbreak. There was a polio outbreak. There was famine. Famine. 15% of children under the age of five were severely malnourished. Uh, I mean, and this, it, it was the most exhausting, the most frustrating the most exhilarating, the most inspiring experience that I'd ever had. It's like you take, and, and it, it was the stuff of poets, and, and, I, it, and it, I, it launched me into a career in global health where I went from working for Doctors Without Borders to working for USAID doing post-conflict development work, helping uh, new governments develop emergency healthcare infrastructure um, after the war had ended. And, uh, and, nice. you know, and it's interesting because when you think about training and skill sets, uh, the one real advantage emergency physicians have in these kind of settings is emergency physicians, and I, I see Debbie nodding over there in the corner, is we, we make very rapid resource-based decisions. We're the only physicians out there that when you give us a problem, but before we tackle that problem, we look to see what's in the cupboard to see what resources we have at our fingertips. Mm. And we make a very rapid decision based on the resources we have. And, and that is something that emergency physicians do really well. We do it every day in the emergency department. And when you go off into these uh, uh, environments of extraordinary uh, depravity and austerity, uh, my, my mentor with Médecins Sans Frontières once told me, you don't sign up for the job, you sign up for the constraints. Uh, and and you, you, you go to this environment where there's nothing but mountains beyond mountains to hurl. And what you have is your, 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 your innovativeness, your, your passion, your, the people you surround yourself by, your comrades and your team. And you say, okay, let's, let's get through the day. And, and it, that, that philosophy, it really filled me up. And it gave me something that I, w- that I was missing in my academic career. And, and then when I came back to the United States... In order, and I'm kind of bringing it full circle, in order to continue to do this, to, to, to be fulfilled and to be filled as a physician, I had to continue to do it in my local community. And that's where, like Debbie, I got involved doing that same humanitarian work, but just doing it locally with the working poor and the homeless. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. You know, we, we learn about people nowadays that have an attention span of, 1.5 seconds and people I get a lot of advice that tell tell us to have a much shorter show because people can only pay attention for a few seconds but as both of you are speaking I'm sitting here thinking I wish we had a four-hour show today. <laughs> this is yeah. what we call episodic, Lynn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, well maybe, maybe part of the problem with our society is that it's not mm-hmm. we should cater to the short attention span. and Maybe we should have longer attention spans when people are talking about important things that matter. Exactly, and that's why we exactly. continue this show at the level we do. And uh, you're making it obvious as to why we do that. I want to ask you both. Those are great stories, and we're going to get into some real detail in some of those things. But before we do that, I want a couple of technical answers. People that want to help out and go to another country to help in a war zone or in a natural disaster, there are two types of people. One is the person who has uh, knowledge of healthcare, like a physician, a nurse, an acupuncturist, a chiropractor, uh, a healer, and the others are people that just want to go. How do people get connected to some of these organizations rather than just, oh, there's a, there's a tsunami in Thailand. I'm just going to get on a plane. What's the best way to go about it, Debbie? Uh, great question because I actually get asked that a lot, it, whether it's spin class or the bank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do I get involved? How do I? Um, I would say, first of all, you actually you don't need to be medical. 
uh, to do any of these trips. There are a large number of organizations that not only want but need non-medical people to help with uh, logistics and dispensing meds and things like that. Um, but I would start with the internet unless you actually know somebody, um, whether it be a nurse or a friend of the family or someone uh, who's done this and they're a great resource. But otherwise, if you just Google medical missions or medical volunteerism, a number, there are so many of these organizations come up and you start by contacting them and finding out details like how much it's going to cost you, the duration of the trip, what vaccines you might need, um, and that sort of thing, and then go from there. Jason, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I, I obviously, you know, I just met Debbie, and, and I, everything she says, I agree with it, so I, I, I'm making a point to, to agree with everything Debbie says. <laughs> it's a great question. And, we all do and, you know, We used to say, when I used to work in Haiti and Mongolia and Uganda and, and Sudan, and I, we used to always say that the, the, the people that go into global health are the M's, the M's, the, the mercenaries who do it for the money, the missionaries who do it for their spirituality, the misfits who do it for their rock and roll ideology, or the mindful. And my advice is wow. be the mindful. Uh, and what do I mean by that? What I mean is, at the end of the day, I mean, there's so many great intentions and great people who have wonderful, who want to do wonderful things. But at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about what I want and what I need. It's about the people we're serving. It's about the community we're serving. And what can I do that can improve the quality of health for these people that are either living in a chronically horrible situation or have just experienced a horrible trauma, whether it be a tsunami, a, an earthquake, or a war? And, and and be be mindful and be reflective. You know, don't just put on a backpack and jump on a plane because then you're in the way. And the United Nations has really wonderful algorithms to calculate you as a Western provider. You know, how much food, water, and shelter do you take in order to be there? And are you worth it? In other words, could a local person be doing what you do? And, and, and all that food and water and, and hotel rooms that you are taking, would that better serve by, to, by the local community? Uh, and there's ways to calculate that. You know, we always, you know, uh, there's a great Lao Tzu quote um, uh, about, um, you know, how do you improve the quality of health in the community? And it goes, go to the people, live among them, uh, love them, learn from them. Start with what you know, work with what they have. But in the end, the people will say, we've done it ourselves. And, and go there with that collaborative spirit. Find an organization whose ideologies you believe in and are allied with, and you can go there as a team and actually be effective at improving the quality of health uh, for whatever community you're working with. Uh, go there. If, if you are good at banking, you know what? All of these nonprofits need to keep their books straight. Go help them develop their finances. If you are good at fixing things, Go with, go with a group and help them keep the generator running in the hospital. I mean, the reality is you have to go with what you, have to go with what you know and, and work with what they have and, and, and keep in the back of your mind, at the end of the day, it's not about my experience. I mean, that's kind of cool to be able to go to a place and get your photograph taken with African babies. But you want to go and actually be part of the solution. Think about sustainability. Think about the, the five-year plan, the 10-year plan, the 20-year plan. What are these people going to do when we leave? Um, and and keep, keeping in mind all these big ideas, be mindful. Don't do it for the money. Don't do it for, you know, do it because you're mindful. And, and that would be my, my piece of advice for, for clinicians and non-clinicians. Oh, well said. Mm, Jason? I concur. Yeah. <laughs> Christina, do you concur? Oh, yeah. I didn't, when, when, when Jason, when you said don't do it for the money, I didn't think there was any money involved in any of this. You'd, you'd be surprised. You know, when I was in Sudan, uh, we used to have different bush pilots that would fly us into war zones. And if uh, bush pilots are a rare breed, they either come, they, they either have the glass, they're glassy eyed missionaries and they do it because uh, it helps them fulfill their spirituality and their faith, or they do it for the money. And I had one bush pilot. I'm not going to say his name because he may be watching, who used to run <laughs> guns to Somalia during the American occupation in the early 90s, you know, with a single propeller plane landing on muddy runways, dodging goats and AK-47 fire. But then he realized that if you fly vaccines into humanitarian zones, uh, it, it's more lucrative. You make more money. <laughs> so <laughs> there is a, a whole non-for-profit industrial complex, and a lot of people are starting to, to write about it, uh, where people, you know, aid, international aid is a multi-billion dollar industry. Hmm. And, and it, it, it's, it's, it's dark. It, it, it feels dirty, the fact that 
some nonprofits are generating huge amounts of revenue, um, really at the sad stories and at the suffering of others and, mm. and not doing it with that mindful pragmatism at heart. Yes, we work with a number of those, airline ambassadors and uh, vitamin angels and so many other <laughs> uh, sources like that. Uh, I'd like each of you just to name all of the countries you've been to for a moment. In terms of helping, not in terms of just traveling. And <laughs> what, what about the countries that we've been to but we wish we hadn't? Do we have to name those ones too? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Jason, start. You already mentioned a few. Just name um, the countries, and then we'll so, get into uh, some Nicaragua, detail. Nicaragua, Guatemala. This is just practicing medicine, right? Not, practicing not, medicine. Not being and, a backpack going and having French cheese. So exactly. you don't want to hear about you know, Paris <laughs> when I was in college that, or anything no, like that, right? Okay. <laughs> That'll um, be in our Nicaragua, Guatemala, El Salvador, um, I, uh, Uganda, Ghana, Honduras, Sudan, the West Bank, Mongolia, the Navajo Indian Reservation, the Lakota Indian Reservation, uh, Antarctica, um, and and I, I always say like if you know doing street medicine, I always feel like when you start getting into the homeless culture, or if you go out into if you ever do work with migrant farm workers out in the in mm-hmm. the in the in the fields, that's its own little cult- country as well. So I have to include you know migrant farm worker communities and the homeless communities as as different countries also. So I and I probably there's probably a few more in there, but uh, I'll, I'll let Debbie add to the list. <laughs> go ahead, Debbie. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. It's, uh, similar. Nicaragua, Honduras, Mexico. Haiti, Romania, uh, Africa, so Mozambique, um, Lebanon. I think I think that's it. Wow! Yeah. As if, I have as so many questions for you. Were you with the Were, were you with the uh, the the American um, medical school there in Beirut when you were in Lebanon? <gasps> no, we we did talk to them. We were with a. Um, so that was the medical teams international, and we partnered with Humedica out of Germany, um, just right across the Syrian border. So it was for the it, Syrian refugees. And when, when you were in Haiti, were you with Project Medishare or Partners in Health? Or no, it's a group called Vision International Missions out of New Hampshire, uh, a smaller organization. But we did again; we partnered with some of the larger groups when we were there. You have to partner with people, I and mean, collaboration is part yeah. of the solution. Oh, I think all too often huge. people work in silos and just. It's not a very effective way to practice medicine. Anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. I know, Glenn, you have a lot more questions. I, I feel like I can just sit here and ask. I, I want to I take Debbie out for a, a pint and just listen to her tell stories and just te- listen oh, to her I wisdom. want to hear, uh, yeah, similarly about <laughs> some of these countries that I've thought about but haven't been to Mongolia and uh, some of the other African countries. And just you must have had some amazing experiences. Wow. So, so may I ask, each time you choose to go out there, do is it a different group or organization that that you're going with each time? Uh, for me or for Jason? Uh, for you, and then Jason can answer. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, the, it depends. So I've been with probably half a dozen different organizations to different countries, but then, you know, I will go back. So I've been to Honduras probably um, 14, 15 times now, but with the same organization. They're mm. quite good. They're called Medico. Um, so really just depends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How about you, Jason? And I agree. It depends. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, everything Debbie just said, I agree with. <laughs> <laughs> and you do the same. <laughs> Okay, you guys are going to have a lot of pints, I can tell. <laughs> I know, that's when the real story is. It's too yeah. bad you're interviewing us now and not after like the third picture, because that's when the gloves off stories are probably going to come out. That, that's oh coming. God. We didn't tell you, that's part two. We have to talk, <laughs> we have to talk bathrooms in all these countries oh. over the lack thereof. I mean, that's oh, just oh, a, no. an episode in and of itself. <laughs> well, Debbie, <laughs> you brought it up. Let's hear oh, one. No. Oh, come on. <laughs> Okay, so um, that was easy. Yeah, well, I'm I am reminded. So right after the Haitian earthquake, um, obviously a lot of structures fell. But interestingly, uh, a few of the outhouses remained, which we used. Um, you know, we we basically camped, but there were these uh, little metal outhouses that have a cement 
square in the center. It's sort of a built up, it's like a giant brick with a hole in the middle. And uh, they, there was no electricity, so there's no light. So at night, it's, it's full of cockroaches. It's probably 110 degrees. And um, now I, I will tell you that the height of this cement, uh, I'm, I'm four by four if I'm lucky. And this came up to about my hips. And I thought, how am I going to do this? How am I going to? So I just stood on it. This may be too much for your audience, but, you know, you just make it work. So in the dark, cockroaches, horrific smell, heat, and standing on a giant square cement block aiming for the small hole in the center. (laughs) You know what's funny, Debbie, listening to that story is... I could tell a lot of stories that are the exact same story, and you could just insert whatever country you want to in the beginning of it. It's hot. It smells bad. There's a big concrete slab with a hole in the center. <laughs> there's gunfire in the background. Exactly. There's gunfire, and, and you just got to do what you got to do. And sometimes it's just easier to go behind a bush. It really is. I mean, I have I, – I know you don't want to hear this, but I've evacuated myself on, on the roadside in traffic. At some point, when you got to go, you got to go. <laughs> Oh my! It, it is a testament to the strengths of the quadricep muscles. Is having yep. oh. diarrhea in a squat pot foreign country. <laughs> That's probably not what the listeners wanted to hear, right? No, they want to hear all of this. Do yoga before you go That's international great. health. <laughs> Bring great. your own porta potty. <laughs> Bring a lot of sandy wipes or you know um, tissue. Wow. So you both you both go to disaster areas and you've you've both been in war zones, correct? I want to know if you find a difference between a disaster zone and a war zone, and I'm I'll leave it open to you as to what areas those differences might be. Jason, well, let me let me let me challenge you a little bit, Glenn. When you say disaster, what are you meaning? What what what's, well, what is a disaster? Well, I'm talking about a tsunami, an earthquake, uh, something like that. A natural disaster is what I'm talking about. Where and, and, and this is this is something that I, you know, if I if I could challenge the viewers to think about the word disaster, mm-hmm. um, for those of us in the industry, disaster management, disaster response, uh, a disaster is any time that the uh, the resources needed um, outweigh uh, the you know the or the the problem at hand. So, uh, you know, and this is, and when we think of disaster, we think of the tsunami and the earthquake and, you know, we think of tornadoes. Uh, but I've begun to really challenge the way I view disaster mm-hmm. uh, because I think of disaster. I think about my colleagues who are at Los Angeles County Hospital where mm-hmm. the wait to be seen by a physician is 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, maybe it's nine hours now. Um, I mean, that, that is a disaster. Like when we go out and work, you know, in, 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 the, in a contemporary emergency department with our healthcare system being such a mess, you know, there's not enough providers out there providing care. And it's, in a lot of ways, a chronic disaster. Um, and, and that's why I, I honestly believe that emergency physicians uh, do well in disaster environments because it's always a disaster in the emergency department. There's always far more need than there are people and resources to take care of it. And, and I find that, you know, and then when I think about disaster, I think about, I, I divide it into two, to two sort of categories. One is emergency humanitarian aid, and the other is development. Um, because some disasters, you know, you look at the disaster, you know, and they pick the country, have been going on for 20 years. So um, with emergency humanitarian aid, it's kind of like the emergency physicians of communities. You go in and you stabilize the situation. If people are starving, you set up a therapeutic feeding center. If people um, have been crushed under buildings, you set up a bunch of operating rooms and bring in a bunch of surgeons. You stabilize. But once the issue's stable, you're not done. And this is where I get really uh, upset with the way we handled the earthquake in Haiti. You're not done. You have to move to the development stage, which is okay, the infrastructure has been destroyed. You need to help build up capacity and build up infrastructure. You need to help train physicians and nurses and community health workers. You need to make yourself obsolete. You need to make it so that you are out of there in a few years and next time you go, you visit as a tourist. And I think too many times people want the glory of that humanitarian aid piece, but don't recognize the absolute essentialness of the development piece. And, and also for, for, for clinicians and non-clinicians who want to volunteer, there are so many disasters 
that happen every day. You know, go volunteer in a local homeless clinic. Go volunteer in, in, a, in a migrant farm worker camp. Go volunteer, you know, at some of these school clinics uh, for, for elementary schools. I mean, there's such, there's such mm-hmm. a need that outweighs the resources that when you look at definitions, that's a disaster. The other comment is, is when you look at disaster and you look at impact, when a big earthquake hits Chile, it doesn't cause problems because the underlying population is not fragile. When an earthquake hits Haiti, it's absolutely catastrophic because the underlying population was experiencing a disaster before the earthquake even hit. I always remember the Onion article that came out after the earthquake in Haiti that says, earthquake hits small island off the coast of Florida and millions of Americans realize that there's poor people living there. It's, it, you know, is that, is that when you look at, you know, who do the tornadoes hit? The tornadoes don't hit, don't, don't just, don't, wreak havoc on the people who live in really nice homes. They wreak havoc on the people who are living in poverty who have very low-income homes. Um, and it's always the underlying vulnerable communities that get hit the worst. And I would like to challenge the viewers to think about disaster, not necessarily in the sexy neo-colonial, I'm going to run off to the aid of the poor people, um, but to think, okay, there's a disaster goes on every day, and I actually have the tools to be part of the solution, and I'm going to, with mindfulness, participate. So I'll get off my soapbox and hand the contract over to Debbie. <laughs> well, before before you do that, I would like I to concur. say, yeah, I would like to say that was a very nice lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Debbie, go ahead. Oh, I just I wholeheartedly agree with Jason. Um, I often often get asked, as I'm sure Jason does, um, you know, isn't what you're doing just a band aid, just a band aid for the bigger problem? And it is such a complex question and a complex issue. And at times, maybe it is, but as Jason was saying, the the real um, work is in, you know, the typical teach a a man to fish, um, give him a fish, and then he eats for a day, teach him to fish, and he fishes for life. So that that is 100% applicable to these situations. And um, it's just, it's, when you're dealing with governments that uh, have no interest in taking care of um, the underserved in their own countries, and and so sometimes the barriers they are huge. But it, in my mind, it it is much better than just sitting on my couch um, to get up and do something, no matter how small. As Jason was saying, even if it's just volunteering some of your banking expertise to an organization. You don't have to be medical. Um, little things, baby steps. And that's, um, yeah. It, I it's interesting. I'm reminded there's a great book that was written by the past president of uh, Doctors Without Borders, James Orbinski, published it in OE, called An Imperfect Offering. Mm-hmm. And that was his reflections on a career in humanitarian and conflict zones. And that, the title of the book was An Imperfect Offering, that, you know, when people get hit with the worst case scenario, what do we have to offer? At its best, it's imperfect. When you think about us as emergency physicians, when people come to the emergency room because their blood pressure is out of control, I can get the numbers looking better, but I can't find them a job that will give them the financial resources so they can afford their medications to keep them out of the emergency department in the first place. I'm offering a Band-Aid in the emergency room, and it's frustrating. And, and, and we do what we can, and we use our experiences being on the reactive end uh, to be proactive and preventive on the policy and 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 public health end, the way that, that Debbie does with with the amazing work she's doing as well. I think you're both both giving examples of bringing the practice of medicine to such a beautiful high level of consciousness uh, for local and the world, just for people. That's that's what this is about, and both of you are really uh, expressing this in such a nice way that I think uh, we're all learning lessons from this. I want to, first of all, thank you both for that. And then I want to talk a little bit about, um, okay, we'll agree that on the concept of disasters, do we have a different concept of war zones? Well, war zones, I think that war zones and, and disasters as well bring up the idea of humanitarian space and security. And humanitarian space is this very obscure, abstract idea of being able to provide humanitarian aid. And what are the physical barriers? I mean, maybe there's, there's 
boulders that are you know, rolling down the hills or, or there's hills or flooding or what. Like Hurricane Katrina, the flooding of New Orleans was a physical barrier to providing humanitarian aid. Uh, humanitarian aid. Sometimes it's, uh, it's political. Sometimes it's military. Sometimes when you think about security, it's dangerous to go into these places. And it's not necessarily dangerous when you look at the spectrum. You know, maybe it's dangerous because you're in Somalia where, where aid workers are targeted Mm-hmm. Or maybe you're in a place like like Haiti, where there's so much violence that aid workers get caught in the crossfire. Um, or maybe you're in a place like East Africa, where you're not you're, you, the 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 quality of the drivers and the roads are so bad, you're more likely to die in a car crash. Um, but to think about what is the the humanitarian space that you're able to provide. Um, care in a war zone, it cha- it makes the dynamic much more complicated because you're not just dealing with the physical barriers and the social barriers and the language barriers, but but the military and political barriers. And that sometimes you might be providing care to a group of people that another group of people is trying to exterminate, and that adds an extra layer of challenge to improving the quality of health in, in communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 that, if I can do another thing for our, my clinician colleagues out there, we as as clinicians, and I'm just, not just talking to doctors, but to nurses and social workers and care techs, we have a responsibility to pay attention to what we see and, and, and share that those stories to the world. That if we're taking care of people that are being oppressed by war or by political influences, and they're sick because they're being, they're being shot at or they're being starved out, we have a responsibility to open up our mouths and say, hey, foul. You know, I, I, this is what I, I'm seeing people that they don't need food to feed their bellies, they need like food trucks to be allowed into the refugee camp. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. this is a systematic uh, political um, action. And, and that happens in our country as well. When you look at food deserts, when you look at the fact that child obesity is such a problem in inner city minorities, well, you look at where they go to get their food, they're getting their food from liquor stores with all this high carbohydrate, low nutritional crap. Whole Foods is not opening up in any inner cities, uh, you know, and we as physicians say, hey, you know, if we want to combat childhood obesity and childhood diabetes, maybe we need to think about addressing some of these social core determinants of health. Mm-hmm. That's right up my alley. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the struggle, Christina. I see yeah. it every day. I serve breakfast to the elementary school students every day, and I see what they're eating here in Los Angeles. That's my next effort is to change that. <laughs> but, uh, what, do you have any other thoughts, Debbie, about being in war or being in actual in act, active conflict? Uh, I agree with everything you said. Um, in so. Yeah, in the the Syrian refugee camps was certainly an experience because there was this dichotomy between um, certainly the refugees needing and wanting help and then their oppressors not so happy about that and um, attempting to smooth over uh, the process just to simply provide the basics and, like you said, even allowing the um, NGO that purified their water to come in and teach them how to use the purification systems, um, things like that, that would be blocked. And it just, it's heart-wrenching because you, you can see what needs to be done and you feel like someone has shackled you um, and tied your arms behind your back and said, okay, now go and, and do your thing. And it, sometimes it's, well, a lot of times, very frustrating. And, and going back full circle to Glenn's original question, the, Debbie, did they teach you how to negotiate with political factions to allow fresh drinking water into refugee camps? Do they teach that in medical school? Is that a course you take? <laughs> <laughs> not even, <laughs> not, you know, and yeah, that it, it remarkable, you know, the number of, of um, things that are lacking in that uh, realm as well. Yeah. You know, Jason, you you brought up uh, your idol, Hawkeye Pierce, and I remember watching MASH also. That was part of our medical training. We had to watch that. Uh, but every once in a while, I remember a show where some an enemy came in as a victim, and the all of the medical staff, you know, there was a little bit of the political part, but when you got down to the doctors and nurses, they cared for the person as if it was their brother. Our sister. job is not to see good and evil, only healthy. And I right. speak on behalf of all physicians. Mm. 
Yeah. Did you ever have episodes where you would take someone who was an oppressor and work with them and try and help them? And do are, you, you know- are you talking about taking care of inner city skinheads in Atlanta? Or are you talking about taking care of uh, the rival ethnic group overseas? You know, based on the way you're leading this today, I'll, I would like to go overseas. I'd like to go yeah, overseas. I think we've all had experiences where where we're taking care of someone that, um, and, and sometimes you got to, you got to dig deep for the compassion. It's hard. You got to dig deep because you know that the person you're caring for is probably not a very good person. But that's not for me to decide. I'm just there to take care of their medical problems and to make sure that they're healthier and leave for leave for judges, for juries, whatever your spirituality is to decide. Um, and and it, it's it's hard. And and that's the stuff that you know we sit around drinking warm beer around the hurricane lamp after a good solid 14 hour day in uh, shedding tears. Uh, because sometimes the people that are part of the problem get very good medical care, but that's not for us to decide, and 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 that that's not, that should never be decided um, in the operating theater or in the uh, in in the, in the clinic. Um, yeah, I think it's, 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 a, it's a, t- a tough one. That, those are the ones that that haunt you. That's true, but we we did get some training in that because I remember, in fact, at at one point, you know, there would always be the possibility that I might get the victim of a sexual assault. And the perpetrator in the same uh, at the same time. They were both in the emergency department at the same time, and we had to treat them uh, equally with as much compassion and let the other systems take care of that. When I, when I was that. at Grady, they, in Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, we used to always say the life you save will be the same one that threatens you in the parking lot when they get out of the hospital. <laughs> Boy, um, that's it's, true. You know, and that's but you know, it's it's the right thing to do, and that's why we do it. We we we're healers. We heal. We don't we don't judge. We heal judge yeah Debbie any thoughts I once again I I completely concur um it's you know when it's a child it's even more difficult but you you do you have to step back and recognize you know that your job as Jason said is to heal and um not to get in the middle of it because if you do, if you get injured, whatever, you are of no use to anybody else um, if you place yourself in that position. So along with the, the mindfulness that Jason was talking about is um, first do no harm. And that means taking care of all comers. Well, you, you both have opened our eyes today as to how medicine can be practiced and how the world exists. And you brought it very interestingly into the idea that all of it is local in a way and we're all people trying to do the best we can and we happen to have certain skills others have other skills and if we all just put them into uh, the same focus it it might be a better world and I know you're both part of that Uh, we're coming to the close of our show and with both of your experiences I'm really looking forward to the health tips that you might come up with so, uh, Debbie, I'll, I'll start with you. <laughs> she giggles. <laughs> oh, I'm feeling so, so banal compared to what we were just talking about. <laughs> I know. <laughs> You're talking about toothbrushing or wearing seatbelts? What are you? <laughs> <laughs> you eat your fruits and vegetables. Okay, I, I have two. And one, so Glenn, we were talking about this earlier, uh, just very briefly, that uh, when, when people look towards lifestyle changes, it always seems so overwhelming. And my, um, I always preach, you know, again, baby steps. And so even if it's just getting up off your couch, uh, during the commercials, that's a place to start. Don't go to the kitchen, but just get up off the couch and move a little, eat a little less. Don't deprive yourself. You can have pizza. Just don't eat the whole pizza, that sort of thing. Um, and then my second one, and it is just a personal pet peeve of mine, is that uh, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't cure the common cold, and neither can a Z-Pack. So when uh, you do catch your cold, don't get upset with your physician if they don't prescribe you an antibiotic, because they are doing what's in your best interest and for the community at large. Oh, I like that. <laughs> wow, I, I'm almost tempted to repeat that was my answer just for repetition emphasis. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was my health tip also. I was, I was going to say that. Um, okay, Jason. Yeah, I had to pick up my, my two tips. Um, you know, in 1948, the World Health Organization defined health. What is health? What is this thing that we're trying to achieve? 
It's not merely the absence of disease, but a state of complete physical, psychological, and social well-being. Mm. That, that's health. That's the goal. That's the goal at the end of the day. And I think it'd be easy for us as emergency physicians to say, you know, you need to floss more, you need to exercise more, you need to walk instead of drive. Um, I think I give Americans a lot more, people in general, a lot more credit. Uh, we kind of know what it is we need to do, but we choose not to. And a lot of times those choices are hand as forces because of the social circumstances. Like you can't go down to inner city L.A. and tell people you need to exercise more when there's gangs in their neighborhood. You know, you, you, just, you can't say I want you to walk to work when they're living in that neighborhood. And I, and I get that. Uh, and, and I think the, the big piece of advice I, w- I would give is, is that when you is don't end up in the emergency department. You know the lifestyle choices you need to make to not end up in the emergency department. I, I feel like the day I'm out of work as an emergency physician is a good day. And I know if Bob is listening to this, I, I'm sure he's going to call to his office tomorrow. But, but I, I really do believe that. As someone whose career has been dedicated to reacting to when things go bad, there's so many opportunities to prevent that at so many stages ahead of time. And I think the second piece, to go along and just to give a philosophical twist to what Debbie said, because... Don't go to your physician expecting antibiotics. I, as a physician, have taken an oath to improve the quality of health for the individual in front of me and for the community I serve. And, and I do it in ways that are, with the best evidence we have, are effective. Sometimes you're going to disagree with me, and I'm okay with that. And I'm okay if you don't like me and I'm not your friend, but I will always tirelessly advocate for your health. Um, and, and sometimes in this consumer-driven culture, where people rate their physicians on Yelp. Uh, sometimes people come to the emergency room and I don't give them what they want, but I do try to give them what makes them healthier. And sometimes that means telling them, you know, you don't need antibiotics. Like Debbie said, what you need to do is, is go out and exercise more and eat healthier. <laughs> Before we, um, thank you both for your extra health tips. That was great. We got two from each of you. This is a, <laughs> an amazing show today. Shall we is go there- for three? <laughs> I think everything they've said so far has been oh, sort of a health amazing. tip in a way. Do either of you have anything when you were preparing for this show? Uh, is there anything that you haven't gotten to say that you want to bring out? I would just recommend that the viewers get involved. Uh, the great secret of humanitarian medicine, whether you're talking about international or local, the great secret is that it's easy to do. It's, it's, mm. it's very, the, the opportunities are so, are so common and, and so easy to obtain and, and get involved and get involved in a way that you can, um, whether you're, you're, you're going to get involved donating your time, donating your money, donating your voice and writing letters to your policymakers. Uh, it's easy to make a difference. And, and that's the big secret is that everyone thinks that people like Debbie or I are heroes and we're not. We're actually regular, ordinary people who have just refused to, uh, to allow these disparities to result in people becoming unhealthy and wanted to do our part to, to address it. So that would be my one little take-home point. Excellent. Debbie? Awesome. Uh, <laughs> again, I concur. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I was thinking about this reading your questions, Glenn, and, and it occurred to me... It, it has always been a privilege to practice medicine, a, a privilege. And yet what I find um, when you step outside of yourself to help another, and you know whether that's in your own backyard or in another country, um, I'll just speak for myself. It's when I'm at my happiest. And I, I think there are a lot of spiritual writers who do write about that. Um, but it really, you know, we, we all know that no amount of money or, you know, it's going to make you happy. But when you reach your hand out to another who can't do it for themselves um, and affect their life in some way you hope or maybe not, but it, um, that is also a privilege. And um, I think that people will find once they do that, that that's where they find genuine happiness and joy. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> world-class medicine, world-class doctors. I'm grateful to our very, very special guests, Dr. Debbie Weinstein and Dr. Jason Prostowski, for sharing their wisdom, experiences, and expertise with us. I would also like to thank all of my teachers and healers for allowing me to be where I am today, and thanking Christina and Segovia and Yoga Hub 
for all of the work that they do and our viewers for continuous support for us. Looking forward to getting together on another tour in the healthcare galaxy on Magical Medical Tour. But until that time, thank you both, Debbie and Jason. And I wish you all optimal health. <laughs> yes, Thanks, of course. Thank, you, thank you. Thank you so much, Jason and Debbie. We're really honored to have you both on the show. It's magnificent. And I feel like the stories can keep going on and on <laughs> over that pint of beer, right? Um, <laughs> and of course, to you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, thank you so much for, for honoring us again. Uh, the wonderful, wonderful show today. And, of course, to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us for our other shows as well uh, through yogahub.tv, such as Trinity of Life, Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. And again, you can reach Dr. Glenn Woolman simply by following him on Twitter, at Glenn Woolman. And of course, through his own website, glennwoolman.com, where I really encourage you to learn about his metaphor, Square Breath. And uh, we always look forward to any feedback or suggestions that you might have. And uh, be sure to leave us your contact information. Give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. And until next time, namaste. Namaste.